is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Felton. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. For a while now, we've been hearing about an antiviral pill to treat COVID. Data shows a widely available antidepressant might actually be more effective at treating the virus. Speaking of that antiviral pill, Merck says it has granted a royalty-free license for that pill to a nonprofit group, but it is not going to allow a generic version. Vaccines for kids 5 to 11 could get approval later this week. Means a lot more people will be eligible to get the shots. Will there be resistance from parents? And the pandemic made childhood obesity in America worse. We start with Merck. Company says studies show it's effective at treating people with COVID-19, their pill. Uh, but it's reported that it could cost $700 per patient, at least here in the U.S. Now we're hearing there are much cheaper antidepressants already available. Might be even better at preventing hospitalizations and deaths. How does that work out? Dr. Jeffrey Klosner, epidemiologist and clinical professor of preventative medicine at USC's Keck School of Medicine. So, doctor, what is this medication and what do we know about it? This is a medication called fluvoxamine. And fluvoxamine has been an antidepressant. It's a medicine that's used to treat obsessive compulsive disorder that's been you know, used for more than 25 years in the United States and all over the world. It's a very safe medicine. And um, some very smart, insightful uh, research psychiatrists from Washington University in St. Louis uh, knew that this medicine actually had a powerful anti-inflammatory effect. And it was being studied in you know, treatment of sepsis and um, uh, complications from excess inflammation for uh, several years. And when they saw you know, early on in COVID that you know, people were dying from the inflammation and it's really you know, the inflammation that causes uh, your lungs to fill up with fluid. It causes this cement-like material to form the lining of your lungs. Um, all that's related to excess inflammation. So they said, hey, if this drug has, you know, stopped inflammation in, in mice, has, you know, stopped inflammation in other conditions, what might its potential be for stopping inflammation in COVID? So they studied it uh, last year, was reported a small clinical trial in uh, Journal of American Medical Association in November that was followed up by a, a study at a horse racetrack up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And both those studies saw profound effects, but you know, everyone was a little bit skeptical. We were going through that whole you know, crisis of conscience with hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. And um, researchers though, you know, wanted to continue studying it. So they continued studying it in Brazil. They did a very large study, 1500 people, half got this drug fluvoxamine, half got a placebo, and now the results are out and they're quite striking. Uh, there was um, about, you know, a substantial uh, effect on reduction in hospitalization and a 91% reduction, 91% reduction in uh, mortality in the number of people who died. So people got placebo, um, 12 people died, but only one person died in the fluvoxamine group. Uh, so that's a very powerful uh, effect. And uh, this drug is widely available. It's inexpensive. The average wholesale price is 25 cents a pill. So actually $5 compared to you know $700 for the Merck product, $5 for a 10-day course, and it really could be groundbreaking. Okay, so now let's sort of kind of 
you know, unpack some of that because there are a couple of questions that are raised, at least in my mind, from what you just said. I mean, the Merck drug, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, the Merck drug is a antiviral, right? And it's designed to uh, be given to somebody in the very early stages uh, of the disease or when they test positive for COVID. And the idea is to actually stop the replication of the virus. So far, so good? Yeah, correct. It's an antiviral. It's a fake right. building block. It inserts into the viral replication cycle and just stops the virus from reproducing. Okay. The antidepressant, as I understood what you just said, is not an antiviral, of course, but it, its main mechanism is to uh, curtail inflammation. But isn't inflammation a kind of later stage issue with COVID infections? And for somebody who just gets COVID, would this drug be the drug of choice? Well, the treatment course is 10 days, and they found in the study that the earlier was started, and the more pills uh, people took, if they completed at least 80% of the 10-day course, they were much more likely to have the sub substantial benefits. So, you know, I would say, yes, if you just took it for the first couple of days, immediately after finding out you have infection, probably not going to be as helpful than if you took it for the full 10 day course. And, you know, one reason why, you know, people with chronic diseases like diabetes or obesity or hypertension or older people get sicker is because of the inflammation, right? So children and young, otherwise healthy people generally don't get that sick because they don't have the same kind of severe inflammatory response. Dr. Jeffrey Klausner, epidemiologist, clinical professor of preventative medicine, USC Keck School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks. It's not just the price of that pill that is making news. Merck says it will sublicense the antiviral drug to manufacturers that give medicine to low- and middle-income countries. Merck doesn't want a generic version of the pills, but it's licensing, you know, the ingredients for it, how to make it. John Love, Director of Knowledge Ecology International, and has done analysis on licensing. Uh, John, what do you make of the deal? I think it is pretty good. I mean, they, uh, Merck is the first country to offer an open license for manufacturers around the world to supply cheap generic versions of its, of its, of its new therapeutic for COVID. It's 105 countries. The number of people living in those countries is about 54% of the world's population. So it's a, the bottom half of the world's population that has a per capita income of around $2,500 a year. So when they license out this information and their recipe for this pill, in terms of bringing the costs down, what do we expect? How low can they go to make sure that it actually has an effect in these countries and, and people can afford to, to go through this round of treatment? Well, America's license is really the, the best uh, uh, and most efficient generic companies in the world to produce a drug. Right now, I think the U.S. price for a course of treatment, which is uh, being treated in the morning and the evening, five days a week, so it's 10 times you take the, the medicine, $712. But I think people reckon that the price in generic countries will be more closer to, to the $20 per treatment range. So it's really a huge difference between what the price would be, for example, in the United States and what it would be in this licensed area. Now, do the wealthy countries then have the ability to go back and say, why is the deal different for us? Or is it just recognized that that price in the poorer countries, you'd never be able to reach it. No one would end up taking this. Yeah, I, I, in the past, this has been done for HIV drugs, actually a very similar license area. So you can you, you can take uh, HIV cocktails that cost over $40,000 a year in the United States, and you can buy them for less than $100 in the licensed area. 
in the HIV area. And that has not really created a problem. I think it's, it's recognized that uh, the income differences are so stark and the access would be so different that it was the right thing to do. And it hasn't really undermined the market for the companies in the higher countries. Now we're, we're concerned about high prices in the United States everywhere when we monitor drug prices. We're often kind of on the other side of drug companies on the drug pricing issues. But as it relates to the people in this licensed area, Merck has really done the right thing. And it's also put more pressure on the other companies that haven't done the right thing. Yeah, we had a discussion not too long ago about the price here in the U.S. and whether the Biden administration would go and try and renegotiate that. But I'm also curious because we were the first to actually make the bulk buy. If there was concern before this happened that with the U.S. going in and buying so much that there wouldn't be a lot of these pills running around for the rest of the world. But now that problem seems to have been solved. Well, I think one of the motivations Merck probably had is they probably wanted to focus their sales on the high-income countries, starting with the United States, but also Europe, Japan, other places where incomes are higher. And they would have been criticized for having diverted most of their production to the United States or other high-income countries. Well, uh, the majority of people that are suffering from COVID live in poor countries and have less access to vaccinations. But I'm wondering about the testing apparatus, because for this to work the way it's supposed to, you know, you're supposed to come down with symptoms, then you need to confirm that it's this within, I don't know, a couple of few days at least, so you can start taking the pill and get on the regimen. But if you can't test fast enough, then how are you going to know? I think it's exactly right. This is a, uh, sort of held out as a, as, as a product that is only effective if it's used early uh, after you're infected and less effective if you wait. So testing is really critical. Another Another thing that I think is unresolved is the safety profile of the drug. Some of the early um, concerns about the drug are why BARDA passed on it in 2020 and why Pharmacet passed on it earlier because there was concerns it might be, um, it, uh, it might not be safe. And uh, we're waiting to hear what the FDA says and what the European regulators say is in terms of how they expect the drug to be used. If it was completely safe, it, it looks like it would be potentially a game changer, in a, as you mentioned, in a test and treat scenario. But if it's not completely safe, uh, then, then I think people have to scale back their expectations of how important this particular drug will be. John Love, Director of Knowledge Ecology International. Coming up after this short break, how much pushback from parents will we see when the vaccine is approved for younger kids? Five to 11-year-old kids could start getting vaccinated as soon as next week. We expect the FDA to grant emergency use authorization to the Pfizer vaccine for that group in the next few days. Now, that means an additional 28 million people in America will be eligible to get the shots. Probably won't be as simple as just authorizing it, though. We've seen a lot of vaccine hesitancy and resistance in the U.S. We'll probably see more of that from parents, at least some of them, in the coming weeks. Dr. Christopher Longhurst, professor of pediatrics and chief medical officer at UC San Diego, Health Doctor, how concerned are you about pushback from mom and dad? Absolutely. And thanks again for having me on. I, I can tell you that I have two children, ages 9 and 11, and I absolutely plan to get them vaccinated uh, next week once this is approved. And I think that all parents should strongly consider this as well. Of course, the best person to talk to about your uh, concerns is your pediatrician or family practitioner. But even while children have low rates of COVID and low risk overall, the reality is that we've had 6 million children infected with COVID and not all of it is low risk, right? In fact, the risk of the vaccine is far lower than the risk of COVID side effects. On top of that, getting your children vaccinated can also protect others, whether those are older people in the family or older people in the community. 
And to that second part, is that something that some people miss because they automatically go to the first and they say, okay, it is a low risk. Maybe my, my child will get COVID, but, but they're probably going to be fine. But the second one, we think just normal cold and flu season, the kids are like disease vectors. They take it everywhere. You're absolutely right. And in fact, we know that um, one of the reasons that we see higher rates of deaths in nursing homes and places like that in January and February is because kids visit over the holidays in December and they actually share their viruses. And so there's no doubt that uh, protecting children against um, coronavirus will help to protect those susceptible elderly or immunocompromised, right? Lots of families have uh, uh, family members with uh, cancer treatment, that sort of thing. Okay, so let me throw at you, and I'm sure you've heard this, uh, some of the arguments that parents are making, uh, those who are concerned or say they're not going to uh, have their kids vaccinated, they say, well, you know, this is a vaccine hasn't been uh, studied long enough in uh, children. Another argument they make is we want to wait and see what the research has to say. And then, of course, there's the the third argument that some adults have uh, used and continue to use that this is still, quote, an experimental vaccine. So how do you deal with those arguments? Yeah. First of all, I understand where parents are coming from. I mean, sometimes we take our kids' safety and health more importantly than we take our own, right? Now, that being said, I think it's really important to understand no vaccine in history has ever been as well-studied as this vaccine, right? It's been administered to over a billion people, um, and the amount of outcomes data we have on that far exceeds anything that's ever come before. The safety testing for COVID vaccines in children is simply the same that it is for all vaccine trials. And we know that the majority of side effects that occur do so in the first four weeks after someone gets a vaccine. So from a safety standpoint, I would feel confident that there's really no, no, no vaccine that's ever been better studied than this vaccine. The myocarditis issue slash news coverage, uh, do you think that plays a role that the heart inflammation? And I guess that goes back to your earlier point um, that you're probably more likely to get myocarditis from COVID than the COVID vaccine. You know, you nailed it. Sometimes the initial headlines get more attention than the follow-up headlines. And there certainly is a, a, a small but real risk about myocarditis associated with the vaccine. What we've learned though, is that all cases that have been vaccine associated have been rare and mild. Um, and the risk of myocarditis, as you suggest, is actually higher from getting COVID. And so again, this is not a reason to avoid vaccinating your children age five to 11. Dr. Christopher Longhurst, Professor of Pediatrics, Chief Medical Officer, UC San Diego Health. The pandemic has made a lot of things worse, and now we're learning about the negative impact that COVID-19 has had on childhood obesity. Which was already a big problem in this country, but uh, how much worse has it gotten since last March? The Robert Woods Foundation has released a report on just that, and Matt Leon with KYW in Philadelphia spoke with Jamie Bussell, Foundation's Senior Program Officer, about the report. The one data set that we lift up in the report comes to us from a federally supported survey called the National Survey of Children's Health. That's for kids age 10 to 17. Um, that data, given the nature of how that data is collected and analyzed, we would not expect today to actually see impact of COVID um, yet on those rates. So with that data set, we're seeing essentially steady state um, you know, over the past years and continue deep, persistent, stark disparities. We also lift up other sources of data in our report, 
Um, and those are absolutely pointing to impacts of COVID on childhood obesity. What is it about the the pandemic that has exacerbated this? Is this a, you know, yeah. people struggling financially, don't have the ability to get good food and, and it, have to it, rely on fast food? Yeah. Like, can you kind of extrapolate that out? Yeah, it it's all of the above. So millions of families struggling with food insecurity. Our nation's safety net is fragile, outdated, out of reach for millions of eligible kids and their caregivers. Safe, affordable housing is scarce. That's forcing families to make really hard choices about how to spend limited resources. We've obviously seen huge job loss um, and changes in income realities. And structural racism is embedded in our policies, our practices, our systems that kind of underlies all of these challenges. And the COVID pandemic has made all of these issues a whole lot worse. So, you know, when we see increases in childhood obesity rates, none of us should be surprised. And the whole truth is that the relationship between COVID-19 and obesity and the disproportionate impact that we're seeing across the board for communities of color, for black and brown populations, is an example of the consequences of longstanding structural racism in this country. And they're a direct result of intentional policies that have limited access to care or created social circumstances that really increase risk of disease. So again, you know, none of this should come as, as a shock um, that we're seeing increases in childhood obesity rates. We have every single system in our lives has been disrupted by COVID. And so no surprise around impact, profound impact on kids of color um, and kids from lower income households on both obesity and COVID. Pandemic related stress has made it much harder for Americans to make basic decisions. And that is something that has really affected millennials. A new survey from the American Psychological Association finds that about half of all millennials are struggling with daily tasks. A majority of them say they feel uncertain about the future, and that has led to a number of changes in behavior from avoiding social situations to eating unhealthy foods. You can find this Odyssey original on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. 